Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, January 6th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Ukraine rejects a Russia-proposed ceasefire. China and the Philippines commit to a peaceful South China Sea solution. A Turkish court suspends funding for the pro-Kurdish party. Israel releases its longest-serving Palestinian prisoner. India's Supreme Court halts the demolition of 4,000 homes. Data shows that the U.S. labor market is surprisingly strong. The mastermind behind a U.S. college admission scam is sentenced to prison. Amazon says it will cut 18,000 jobs. Multiple U.S. states introduce policies targeting homelessness. And Jordan Peterson challenges a remedial training order. In our top story, we look at day 316 of the conflict in Ukraine as Ukraine rejects Orthodox Christmas ceasefire. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Yahoo News, President Zelensky's website, U.S. News and World Report, Associated Press, Ukraine Forum, and Al Jazeera. For the first time since the conflict began last February, Ukraine is set to receive French and American armored vehicles following announcements from Presidents Macron and Biden on Wednesday. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky thanked Western counterparts but pressed them to provide tanks, which are used primarily to break enemy lines, while armored vehicles are fighting vehicles that transport larger numbers of soldiers. Without specifying numbers, Francis Macron said his country would be sending Ukraine the AMX-10RC and Bastion armored vehicles. In his nightly address, Zelensky thanked Macron and added, This is what sends a clear signal to all our other partners. There is no rational reason why Ukraine has not yet been supplied with Western-type tanks. And this is very important to restore security for all Ukrainians and peace for all Europeans. Biden's announcement that the U.S. would be sending Bradley armored vehicles came after Zelensky's address, but also made no mention of tanks, namely Abrams tanks, which Zelensky has previously called for. However, on Wednesday, Poland signed a $1.4 billion agreement to purchase its second batch of U.S. M1A1 Abrams tanks. U.S. officials said Poland was the first European ally to be receiving the equipment. Meanwhile, with weeks of the heaviest fighting taking place around the Donetsk city of Bakhmut, with heavy losses for Russia and Ukraine, an unnamed U.S. administration official told Reuters that according to its intelligence, heavy fighting is likely to persist for the foreseeable future, with the outcome uncertain as Russians have made incremental progress. Over the past day, Ukraine's armed forces said it destroyed two Russian munitions depots near Bakhmut, as well as one in Lyman and one in Advivka. The claim couldn't be independently confirmed. Elsewhere, heavy Russian shelling continued to be reported in the Kherson region, where four civilians were reported killed and three others were injured in attacks over the past day. One civilian also died in Dnipropetrovsk. Three civilians were killed and three more were injured in Russian attacks on Zaporizhia. And in Kharkiv, one person was killed and two more were injured in a mine explosion. Meanwhile, as Christmas Eve approaches on January 6th in Eastern Orthodoxy, Ukraine has rejected a Russian-proposed ceasefire following calls from Russia's head of its Orthodox Church, Patriarch Kirill. The proposed détente was set to last 36 hours from midday Moscow time on Friday to midnight of the following day. 
All right, on this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were the facts. Let's start our narrative spins with an anti-Russian narrative from Pravda. Russia's patriarch Kirill is not an authority in global orthodoxy, and worse, he has openly supported Putin's invasion of Ukraine. The proposed ceasefire was nothing but a cynical trap and Russian propaganda. And a pro-Russian narrative coming from TASS. As countries that predominantly follow the Eastern Orthodox tradition, Russia and Ukraine should observe the ceasefire so that people can safely celebrate and worship on both Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives provided by the Metaculous Prediction Community. This one says there's a 3% chance that Russia will be removed from the UN Security Council by 2024. Eric, the idea of ceasefires and like gentlemanly war always kind of fascinate and flummox me. If, if we can declare a ceasefire, can't we just stop fighting altogether? Right. If you're going to, yeah. If you're going to stop it for the holidays, stop it for good. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> the PRC and the Philippines commit to a peaceful South China Sea solution. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, The Economic Times, and countercurrents.org. China and the Philippines announced on Thursday that they would establish a direct line of communication regarding the South China Sea and resolve their disputes in the contested waterway through peaceful avenues. The Philippines and China signed a framework agreement that contains 14 elements aimed at reducing tensions and strengthening economic collaboration. The new accord comes as both nations strive to mend a damaged relationship after the Philippines won an arbitral ruling in 2016 that invalidated China's claims in the South China Sea. After Philippine President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. met Chinese President Xi Jinping in Beijing, both leaders stated they would respect each nation's sovereignty and territorial integrity. They also agreed to resume talks on oil and gas exploration in the South China Sea and discuss cooperation on renewable energy, electric vehicles, and nuclear power. Both nations also declared the importance of maintaining peace and stability, as well as freedom of navigation and overflight in the South China Sea. They will also hold an annual dialogue on security issues. Marcos said he had made a case for Filipino fishermen who have been denied access to their traditional fishing grounds by China's Navy and Coast Guard. President Zeev promised they would find a solution to allow them back into their fishing waters. Both sides also renewed an agreement on Z's Belt and Road Initiative. PRC investors pledged $22.8 billion in renewable energy and other infrastructure projects in the Philippines. Those were the facts, and here are the spins. The anti-China narrative is the first one coming from Manila Times. The Philippines' position is that there is no territorial conflict with China. The reality is that China is claiming territory that belongs to the Philippines. The Philippines will continue to work with China and the other parties through diplomacy and dialogue. However, the Filipino position is clear. It will not give up even a square inch of the territory of the Republic of the Philippines to any foreign power. And the pro-China narrative comes from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the People's Republic of China. China has a solid historical and legal basis for its claims. China has never changed the basis or scope of its claims and has worked with ASEAN countries to maintain regional stability. The most significant risk to peace and stability in the South China Sea is the inappropriate intervention and frequent interference by countries outside the region. Nations without territorial claims in the South China Sea should respect efforts made by countries in the region to maintain peace and stability. 
And there's a nerd narrative coming from the Metaculous Prediction community. It says that there is a 5% chance that there will be a deadly clash between U.S. and Chinese armed forces before 2024. You were looking at property in the Philippines recently, weren't you, Scott? Looking at a few square inches? <laughs> that's right. That's right. And I will not turn it over to either China or the Philippines. That's, okay. that's my personal policy. <laughs> Turning our attention to Turkey as a Turkish court suspends funding for a pro-Kurdish party. And here are the facts, as agreed upon by Reuters, Al Jazeera, Al Arabia, Bloomberg, Washington Post, and Politico. Turkey's constitutional court on Thursday ruled 8-7 to seven in favor of freezing People's Democratic Party bank accounts holding treasury funds while a case on banning the party over alleged ties to the terrorist-designated Kurdish Workers' Party continues. This decision, which deprives the second-largest opposition group in the Turkish parliament of key revenue ahead of June's general elections, comes as the HDP was reportedly due to receive $29 million in treasury funding this year. Next Tuesday, Chief Prosecutor Bekir Sahin is due to plead his case to disband the party before the vote. And if the court rules against the HDP, it will be able to either dissolve the party or ban some of its members. The HDP has been a significant political force since 2015, winning 80 parliament seats that year to temporarily prevent the ruling AKP from securing a majority. It garnered nearly 12% of the votes in the 2018 parliamentary elections, and then helped the opposition win mayoral races in Ankara and Istanbul in 2019. The party has denied accusations of acting on behalf of the PKK, which has waged an insurgency since 1984, claiming that it had been targeted by Erdogan's government due to its past electoral success and growing appeal beyond Turkey's Kurdish-majority southeast region. Though the HDP is not part of the six-party opposition alliance, it could become the kingmaker, as polls suggest that neither the AKP nor the unified opposition bloc will win a majority in parliament. Thanks for those facts, Eric. We have an establishment critical narrative from Daily Sabah. This temporary freezing of funds is just the latest step in the ongoing battle to combat the HDP's long list of wrongdoings. The party has long colluded with the terrorist PKK and its affiliated groups, transferring taxpayer money to and actively providing personnel in defiance of the democratic and universal rules of law to undermine the unity of the Turkish state. And the pro-establishment narrative coming from DW. The contentious attempt to dissolve or otherwise limit the HDP, including through the dismissal of dozens of HDP politicians from office since 2015, undermines the ability of Turkish voters to choose their representation and is thus an attack on democracy and pluralism. This latest move must be condemned. And the cynical narrative comes from Middle East Eye. The court has clearly become an election tool for the ruling government. It's no coincidence that it ruled this way just months before general elections, despite rejecting the same request twice in the past year. What do you think about the freezing of funds and things like that, Eric? How do you, where, where do you stand on that philosophically? You know, I think it really depends on containerizing them. I like to hide them in a coffee can and put them in the back of the freezer. You got to get one of those Yeti coolers. That'll keep no, it cold. That's, that's too obvious. Oh, right. It's got to be incognito. <laughs> you know, they say a good, uh, a good thing to do when you're trying to watch your budget is to freeze your credit card in a block of ice. Exactly. Because then if you need to use it, you'll have to wait a day for it to thaw out. Right. So, yeah. Lots to think about here. It, Thanks lots, for that. Yeah, thank you. Israel releases their longest-serving Palestinian prisoner. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by Voice of America, Reuters, BBC News, Al Jazeera, and the Jerusalem Post. Karim Yunus, who was convicted in 1983 of the kidnapping and murder of Israeli soldier Avi Bromberg in the Israeli-occupied Golan Heights and is the longest-serving Palestinian prisoner in an Israeli prison, was released on Thursday. Yunus, dressed in a traditional Palestinian shawl, was greeted by family, friends, and supporters in his hometown of Ara, who chanted slogans and carried him on their shoulders. Yunus, who became a significant Palestinian figure in prison for his written political works and calls for agreements with Israel, is an Israeli citizen. He told Al Jazeera that Israeli authorities moved him multiple times before dropping him off at a bus station in Renana, a town north of Tel Aviv. He then managed to contact his family with the support of a passerby. The release is controversial as some Israeli political figures have called for him to be rearrested or stripped of his citizenship. Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas stated that the prisoners are all in our eyes and they are all our brothers and their cause is sacred for all of us. Yunus's release comes only a week after Israel swore in a new right-wing government. In addition, according to the Palestinian human rights group Adamir, around 4,700 Palestinians are being held in Israeli prisons and detention centers. Middle East Eye gives us a pro-Palestine spin. It says, Yunus is a hero of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from occupation and deserves to be celebrated for his sacrifice. Though extremists in the Israeli government may attack him rhetorically, Yunus will continue to stand firm in his commitment to the Palestinian cause. And the pro-Israel narrative comes from the Times of Israel. Yunus is not a hero, but simply a terrorist. His release is another example of the moral disparity in this conflict. Israelis are seen as oppressors and occupiers when they call for peace, but Palestinians are lauded as heroes for murdering Israelis. And we have a nerd narrative for this story. It says there's a 50% chance that Israel will recognize Palestine by September of the year 2068. Turning our attention to India as the Supreme Court halts the demolition of 4,000 homes. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Independent, Times of India, Hindustan Times, NDTV, Al Jazeera, and Wire. On Thursday, India's Supreme Court stayed the decision of the Uttarakhand High Court to demolish over 4,000 homes located along the railway line in the Banbulpura district of the town of Haldwani, which would have rendered over 50,000 people, primarily Muslims, homeless. The Supreme Court ruled that the residents, reportedly 25,000 voters and 15,000 children living in a 78-acre tract, could not be evicted by force without a thorough review of their rights to the property, deeming this case a human issue. Protests erupted after railway authorities carried out a survey of illegal encroachments in the railway land following a removal order by the Uttarakhand High Court that would result in the demolition of houses, temples, mosques, and schools. Activists and politicians that joined demonstrations blamed the action on the ruling of the Bharatiya Janata Party, or BJP, claiming that the sudden illegality of these buildings was due to the area's Muslim-majority population. Following Thursday's ruling, residents of the area garnered in two locations, women and men separately, to pray and express their gratitude for the court's humanitarian perspective on their plight. The next hearing is scheduled for February 7th with the top court asking the government of Uttarakhand and the railways to find a practical way out as decade-long residents of the area had claimed land through leases and purchases from auction after migrations in 1947. Thanks for the facts, Eric. We have a left narrative from Indian Express. 
This is but the latest in a series of eviction and demolition schemes happening across India. These actions target so-called illegal sites that have been around for decades, operating legally and within the full view of the government until it no longer benefits leaders. Human beings who have lives and attachments to the locations are uprooted simply because they're seen as poor and disposable. And True News India gives us a right narrative for this story. This case went on for six years in the Uttarakhand High Court, which ordered the illegal encroachments into government lands belonging to the utility to be removed peacefully. Yet the Islamist, leftist, liberal faction keeps trying to depict the administration as the villain by turning a legitimate eviction drive into a human rights issue. As long as the law applies to all in India, Hindus and Muslims, squatters will never be the victims. I think in the United States, we'd call this what imminent domain when they want to put a yes. train track through your house and they Absolutely. say you got to go. Yeah. That's always struck me as weird too. The, uh, I, I can understand the necessity for it in some cases, uh, but that seems pretty weird to have your house be run over by a train. Wouldn't feel very good. That's for sure. Especially if you were in it. A report claims the labor market is strong despite high interest rates. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Investment Week, CNBC, Yahoo Finance, and HRO Today. According to the ADP National Employment Report, jointly developed between private company ADP and the Stanford Digital Economy Lab and released on Thursday, U.S. private employment increased by 235,000 jobs last month. Economists had expected a gain of approximately 150,000. The news, alongside unemployment claims for the last week of December, dropping from 204,000 from 223,000, caused the S&P to open 1.2% lower, as well as the Nasdaq to decrease by 1%. It's believed that investors fear strong job numbers could push the Federal Reserve to continue raising interest rates, which were raised seven times in 2022, totaling 4.25%. The Bureau of Labor Statistics data on Wednesday also indicated that there were approximately 10.5 million job openings at the end of November, equating to 1.74 jobs for every unemployed person. The report also showed that annual pay increased 7.3% year-over-year. Neela Richardson, chief economist at ADP, stated that the labor market hiring varied sharply by industry and size with large establishments seeing a drop in unemployment compared to small and medium companies. This story has generated three different spins, and we begin with Narrative A coming from Reuters. Markets already want to know when the Federal Reserve will start making cuts. While many have warned U.S. inflation hasn't turned the corner yet, the markets are demanding change. With the ADP report potentially causing the Fed to raise interest rates even further, it's, it's perhaps too early to be having such a discussion. And The Guardian brings us Narrative B. The Fed must stop raising interest rates. Domestic inflation is driven by profits rather than wages, which interest rates don't directly affect. Impacting workers rather than businesses, the government should use other means to tame inflation, such as windfall profit taxes and antitrust enforcement. Finally, for this story, we have a cynical narrative coming from Axios. Discussion of a healthy labor market and raising interest rates often neglects the deadly fingerprints of COVID. Fed Chair Jerome Powell himself correlated a tight job market to the pandemic deaths of nearly 500,000 American laborers. Factor in perhaps 4 million long COVID sufferers, and the picture of just why the U.S. job market is so tight has more context. 
In our next story, the mastermind of a college admissions scam has been sentenced. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, CNN, Associated Press, Sky News, and Forbes. William Rick Singer, the architect of the largest U.S. college admissions scam, was sentenced on Wednesday to three and a half years in federal prison for helping children of the rich and famous secure admission to elite, school, to elite schools and universities through cheating and bribery. In addition to the prison time, the 62-year-old was sentenced to three years of supervised release and ordered to forfeit over $10 million. Singer is due to report to prison on February 27th. Prosecutors had sought a six-year sentence for Singer, whose extensive cooperation with the government's sprawling Operation Varsity Blues investigation helped authorities arrest dozens of celebrity parents and athletic coaches in March of 2019. Singer, who pleaded guilty to racketeering conspiracy, money laundering conspiracy, conspiracy to defraud the U.S., and obstruction of justice in 2019, reportedly paid out $7 million in bribes while pocketing $15 million for himself. Through his college admissions counseling firm, The Key, and its charity, The Key Worldwide Foundation, Singer reportedly employed illicit tactics to aid applicants in cheating on standardized tests, such as the SAT, and bribed coaches to assist non-athletes' entrance into universities, including Yale, Georgetown, and USC. Celebrities who served prison time in the Operation Varsity Blues scandal include Full House actor Lori Laughlin, her fashion designer husband Massimo Giannulli, and Desperate Housewives star Felicity Huffman. Thanks for that update on this long-running scandal, Eric. We have an establishment-critical narrative from the New York Times. The desperation of wealthy parents to get their children into prestigious schools is astounding. The fraud not only reflects the extraordinary length these influential people can go to, but also exposes the vulnerability of a flawed education system. While the story may have ended with the culprits behind bars, the fundraising admission process link has left unscathed, leaving the rampant world of college elitism intact. And a pro-establishment narrative coming from New York Post. Although there are certainly monetary barriers to attending prestigious schools, the unraveling of this scam attests to the steps that have been taken to address this. While the deeply integrated classism in the prestigious U.S. college admission system cannot be changed overnight, Singer's sentencing is a start. You know, my greatest fear is I'm going to get rich right after they close up all these loopholes for rich people. <laughs> what a shame. Amazon to cut 18,000 jobs amid rising costs. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, the About Amazon Company blog, the New York Times, the Financial Times, and the Wall Street Journal. On Wednesday, U.S. multinational tech giant Amazon announced it would cut over 18,000 jobs, roughly 6% of its corporate workforce, in an ongoing effort to rein in costs. In a letter to employees, CEO Andy Jassy cited the uncertain economy and Amazon's decision to hire rapidly over the last several years as reasons for the cuts, which will primarily affect staff in Amazon stores and Amazon's People Experience and Technology Solutions, or PXT, organizations. The cutbacks come after Amazon in October reported making $127.1 billion in sales, an increase of 15% from a year earlier. Despite returning to profitability, the e-commerce giant reported $2.5 billion in operating losses in its international operations. 
Furthermore, the news of massive layoffs comes the day after Amazon took out an unsecured $8 billion loan from several lenders, including TD Securities. Amazon stock rose 2% in after-hours trade, though the increase follows a slump of almost 50% in 2022. This is the latest in a series of tech industry layoffs after San Francisco-based company Salesforce fired 10% of its staff on Wednesday. Meanwhile, Facebook and Instagram parent company Meta fired 13% of its staff in November of 2022. Bezos stated that the company will offer severance to its laid-off employees, including a separation payment, transitional health insurance benefits, and external job placement support. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. As we look at the spins, the first one is a narrative A coming from Forbes. Although the pandemic tech boom allowed companies to increase their workforces by as much as double, recent economic woes have unfortunately shattered that brief market boom. The U.S. Federal Reserve has reacted to inflation by hiking interest rates, leading to a reduction in available venture capital, while digital ad revenue is also down. The firms that overhired during the pandemic are now being forced to downsize. And Narrative B comes from the Harvard Business Review. Layoffs are the old-school way of dealing with recessions. Companies should today find alternative strategies because social media has made everyone a workers' rights activist with a global microphone. Beyond the poor optics, companies that conduct mass layoffs have been proven to perform more poorly than those that avoid them because of the cost of restructuring and the low morale among remaining staff. And there's a nerd narrative for this story. It's saying that there is a 50% chance that the annual U.S. unemployment rate will be at least 6.06% in the year 2027. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. I lived in Seattle for most of the past decade and uh, it was always, I did not work in tech as so many of my friends did. And th- they would always say, oh, you got to get a job in tech, but you get paid a ton of money. I mean, I think, I think the worm's turning on that a little bit now. The unemployment rate in Seattle is probably nil. Uh, I don't know. Walk around the city blocks and there's enough homeless people, to, unless they're working from home as well. I bet they are. In our next story, multiple U.S. states are furthering anti-homeless policies. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Inkle, Guardian, and WIO News. As numerous states across the U.S. pass more restrictions on homeless encampments, including fines, imprisonment, and forced hospitalization measures, advocates are raising concerns over the welfare of homeless individuals. A new Missouri state law, which was signed by Governor Mike Parson in June, and took effect on January 1st, has made it a crime for anyone to sleep on state property. It also imposes up to a $750 fine or 15 days in prison for multiple offenses of sleeping in public parks or under city highways. After the new law took effect, authorities also decreased funds for homeless services and changed other funding streams. The law has faced backlash, including from Parson-appointed mental health director Valerie Hoon, who said homeless people will have a harder time finding housing with criminal records. In New York City, under Mayor Eric Adams, city officials have outlawed homeless people from sleeping on the subway or riding in the trains all night. While cutting homeless services by $400 million, the city also arrested 400 people last year for being outstretched. As New York City attempts to combat its crisis of between 60,000 and 80,000 people living on the city streets, Adams, in November, also announced plans to allow first responders 
to forcefully hospitalize the mentally ill, who cannot support their basic human needs in an extent that causes them harm. In Los Angeles, the city council voted to ban homelessness encampments within 500 feet or 152 meters of schools. And in Chicago, protests emerge over the city's plan to remove donated winterized tents for homeless people to make room for street cleaning. All right, we have a pro-establishment narrative on this story from Daily Caller. The issue of homelessness is not a left or right issue, but rather a health crisis affecting both homeless and non-homeless city residents. This is why some of the most liberal cities like Los Angeles, Seattle, Portland, and Washington, D.C. have begun to outlaw such dangerous encampments. Leaving mentally ill or drug-addicted people vulnerable to busy streets and violent crime is not compassion. It's reckless. And the Detroit Free Press gives us the establishment critical narrative for this story. With nowhere else to go, homeless people only endure further hardship and trauma when their encampments are bulldozed away. These laws don't just remove inconvenient tents, but also the food, clothing, and other goods these people require to stay alive. Cities are deciding to scrap vital programs without providing viable alternatives. With political and economic life embracing austerity, these policies are inhumane and cruel. What was I just saying? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and our final story, Canada's Jordan Peterson challenges remedial training order. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the New York Post, the College of Psychologists of Ontario, Jordan Peterson's Twitter account, Global News, and The Spectator. Prominent Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson is mounting a legal challenge against the College of Psychologists of Ontario, or CPO, over claims that the governing board is threatening to revoke his license to practice unless he attends a coaching program. In a ruling publicized on November 22nd, the CPO confirmed that it requires Peterson to complete a specified continuing education or remedial program in order to address issues regarding professionalism and public statements. Peterson, calling the program a social media communications retraining, filed a notice of application for judicial review with the Ontario Divisional Court. He also wrote a letter to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, published in the National Post, detailing the situation. In a series of tweets on Wednesday, Peterson commented on the CPO's requirement asserting that it's politically targeting professionals who challenge the existing political order. Citing confidentiality reasons, the CPO hasn't outlined specific public statements of concern that led to its ruling. Since coming to fame in 2016, Peterson has accumulated more than 15 million followers across social media and sold millions of tickets to his talk shows. However, he has also been a source of controversy. Some have accused his tweets of being transphobic, sexist, and racist, and his comments on transgenderism have prompted a wide range of reactions. Two spins emerging from this story, Scott, beginning with the left narrative coming from Prince George Citizen. Jordan Peterson is known for decrying victim culture, yet he loves to play the victim. His roots are in academia, but since becoming a public figure, he has left teaching, citing reasons that don't really make sense. Not only is he a hugely controversial figure, but also a tremendously influential one, which brings a set of responsibilities he's not adhering to. Until he does, he must stay in his lane of academia. And the Wall Street Journal takes us home with the right narrative. Let's just call it what it is. Jordan Peterson is having his professional career and reputation threatened by political bullies 
The only wrongdoing Peterson has committed is dissenting from the prevailing woke ideology. Professional bodies are supposed to ensure the competency of practitioners, not police language and political beliefs. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, January 6th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.